You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Resurrection and the life. This morning we are again back in our Gospel of John series, and by the title you can probably assume that we are going to be looking at the fifth I am statement of Jesus Christ in this Gospel of John, which is, I am the resurrection and the life. We'll be looking at the meaning of this powerful statement, and especially in the context of our passage and why Jesus says this in the first place. And similarly to the previous I am statements that we've already looked at and studied, this serves as an explicit declaration of Christ's divinity to his audience, to those who is reading uh, John's gospel. It is an explicit declaration that he is, in fact, the Messiah that was prophesied about from the Old Testament. And all of the I am statements are act in a similar fashion. When Jesus says that he is the bread of life in John chapter 6, he is connecting himself with the manna that fell from heaven in order to feed God's people. When he says that he is the light of the world, he's connecting himself as well to the pillar of fire that led the Israelites in the wilderness, that gave them direction in the wilderness. Jesus was claiming to be that pillar of fire. When Jesus says that he is the door and the good shepherd, again, these are all prophetic and Old Testament imagery that Jesus is invoking to declare to his people that he is, in fact, the only way to good pastures, the only good shepherd that leads his people faithfully to eternal life. John specifically records these I am statements, seven of them to be exact, to fulfill his thesis for his entire gospel, which we know is John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In addition to evidence of, this, of Christ's divinity via the miracles that he records and the witnesses to his testimony, John gives explicit statements from Christ claiming that he is in fact the Son of God and the Messiah so that his message is not misconstrued, so that nobody misinterprets or confuses Jesus as just some good teacher or some moral teacher, that, he, that it's very clear, even from the mouth of Christ himself, that he is in fact divine, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. John's desire for his gospel is that he has evangelistic purposes for, his, for this gospel, for his readers to see the supremacy of Christ, to see the sufficiency of the gospel, and for, of course, his readers to believe unto salvation, that they would see why Christ is worthy of faith, worthy of, of putting our trust and dependence on for our eternal security. And so, the hope for this morning, as we unpack this fifth I am statement of Christ, is that we understand what this statement entails, and, and really see who Jesus is all the more. What Jesus is saying about himself, what Jesus is saying about his purpose in his ministry, and his role as the Savior. My hope is that we would see the, the promises that Christ offers for those who believe in him. As we study and, and learn all the more about why he is the resurrection and the life, I hope that we would come out of all of this glorifying Christ all the more, worshiping God all the more for all that he has done, all that he has accomplished in his life and death. And, and the hope is that we would devote ourselves to follow him all the more. Because in this life, because as we'll see from Martha's experience in our passage, this I am statement of Christ, along with the others, are, are not some sort of ethereal or theological idea of some future promise or future events. Christ's declaration should have and does have present day implications. Application for our day today, our lives today. There's a tangibility to what Jesus is trying to communicate in this, in this I am statement when he discusses it with Martha, as we'll see. So let's jump into our passage and see what Jesus really meant when he says that he is the, the resurrection and the life. Everyone say, jump for me. Amen. 
A little unified? Okay, we'll get better. <laughs> Don't worry. Let's look at uh, where a passage picks up. Uh, last week, we, we stopped where Jesus and the disciples finally head out to visit Lazarus. If you remember from last week's sermon, the beginning of John chapter 11, Jesus hears the news that Lazarus is sick, but he delays. He stays two more days with his disciples, and then he finally leaves. That's where our passage picks up. And we know that Jesus delays for the purpose of demonstrating God's glory, demonstrating this great miracle of raising Lazarus uh, from the dead. Now, Jesus arrives on scene, verse 17 of our passage. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Uh, if you recall, it, the messenger comes and Jesus delays for two days. The idea is that when the messenger left to tell Jesus, Lazarus had probably already died, probably two days travel time to get where Jesus was, and then Jesus waits another two days, and when he finally leaves, that counts to four days in total. And where Jesus arrives to is, of course, in verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, I think this is an important detail that John includes in our passage because it gives us a lot of context here and it sort of raises the stakes of what Jesus is about to do. First and foremost, this passage or the verse that we just read and how a great lot of people came to console Mary and Martha for Lazarus' death implies that Lazarus' family was an important family in Jewish society. They were a prominent uh, family in that culture. Lots of people knew them, hence why many people came to that funeral. Now, this is also recorded for the specific purpose of raising the stakes, because if you remember from last week, when Jesus says that to, finally says to his disciples that we're going to go to Jerusalem, we're going to go back to, to Bethany where uh, Lazarus and the family is, his disciples try to stop him. They tell Jesus that, hey, the people down there just tried to kill you, and you want to go back down? So John includes this detail of how a great gathering has come forth for the funeral of Lazarus to, to specifically say that this is danger zone for Jesus. Jesus is coming to this, to this area, going into Bethany, knowing full well that the people who are there for Lazarus' funeral also wants to stone him, also wants to put him to death. Now, in addition to that, it's talking about how these people are still mourning even after Lazarus has already been put to the tomb after four days. Well, in Jewish tradition, this is something called the Shiva, where it, the mourning period is seven days after burial. Uh, and in Jewish tradition, they would even have paid or so-called professional mourners, also called the wailing women, to come and specifically cry over, mourn over, wail over the deceased person. Sometimes it even got out of the hand where people would pay for these professional mourners to come at a funeral, and the more mourners you had demonstrated the prominence of the person who passed away. I don't think that's the case for Lazarus's uh, uh, funeral here. If Listen, when I pass away, I expect everyone to mourn, uh, you know, sincerely. I don't want any paid mourners, all right, at my funeral, please. So this is the context that Jesus is stepping into. He's stepping into a place of grief, of sorrow, of Jewish traditions and superstition, of people that hate him even. And he's coming into this context for the specific purpose of, again, bringing God's glory to light, raising Lazarus to death, as we'll see next week, but also to minister to these sisters that are grieving over this, this, this brother that they lost. Look at verse 20. It says, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Remember that point, that Mary stayed in the house. That's going to be big next week. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And you know, it's interesting what Martha says to Jesus because it sounds like there's still some sort of hope remaining in Martha. 
However, this hope that Martha has and is trying to communicate to Jesus is not the hope of resurrection. It's not the hope that Jesus would, would bring Lazarus back to life at this moment. And we know that because later on in John chapter 11 in verse 39, when Jesus goes to the tomb and he says to remove the stone, it is Martha who objects to the whole thing. It's Martha who says, who says Lord, he's been in there for four days. He's going to smell. Let's not do that. So this hope, that we, the sense of hope that we get from what Martha is saying in this verse, in these couple of verses, it's not, it's not a statement of, of hoping that Jesus would bring Lazarus back to life. It's more so her hope and knowledge that Jesus has a special connection to the Father. That whatever Jesus asks for that, that, uh, to the Father, God would do. That's why, again, the, 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 it's, that's what she says in verse 22. This, uh, we know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. He, she understands that there's a special connection that Jesus has. But really, what this statement is saying and, and communicating from the heart of Martha is her sense of desperation. That, that Jesus would do anything to help this situation. If you've ever felt like you were on the end of your rope, if you've tried everything, if, you, if you've ever um, been in a place where you are absolutely desperate, that you will, you will turn to anything for help, for comfort, for change, for something good out of whatever your context is, whatever is trouble or situation that you find yourself in, then you know how Martha is feeling here. She is desperate for any consolation in this context. So Jesus' response in verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now we know, knowing what's about to happen, that Jesus is just simply stating a fact. That Lazarus is going to come back to life. He is simply stating a, tr a truth statement. He's, he, he's communicating that. But again, Martha doesn't think that. Martha has other thoughts, other connections to that. She says in verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Some context here. There was a, and there still is, a Jewish belief of resurrection. It's their idea of eschatology, the end times. In Jewish, and really in the Old Testament understanding of what happens when we die, um, first, I, I think it's important to clarify that our, our, our bodies, our, our, ourselves, are composed of a dichotomy, right? We are composed of a body and a soul. Those two things. You as an individual, you're, you have two parts to you. You have your physical body, and you also have your soul. In biblical understanding, and Jewish and Old Testament understanding, when somebody dies, your body goes to the grave. Right? And that's why we bury people. But your soul, in the Old Testament, your soul would go to a place called Sheol, a place of darkness. It was a holding place. Um, Sheol was also translated to Hades or even hell in some contexts. Old Testament understanding is that when an individual died, their body goes to the grave, but their soul goes down to Sheol until the last day called the resurrection, where all the dead would come to life again, be united, their soul and body would be reunited and stand before God in judgment. And, of course, they, this is the Jewish eschatology. They get this from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. It says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you will dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Again, so this statement that Martha is saying of the, I know that my brother will rise in the resurrection, that is a very specific Jewish statement that she's referring to. She's referring to the day that all the dead will rise for the sole purpose of judgment. Judgment. It's judgment time. Again, when the body and soul come together and, every, and they stand before God in judgment. And we see what that judgment is for in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Jews and Martha, they understood that eventually all the dead would rise and stand before God, who is going to judge them, and Lazarus, 
Martha's faith and belief is that Lazarus is, yes, going to rise again. And she thinks that that's what Jesus is talking about. She thinks that's what Jesus is, uh, is referring to, that her, brother's, her brother is going to rise again. See, what Martha is doing in this context is that she's connecting her, her brother's death, her, her sorrow, her grief, this terrible situation, to biblical truths and understanding, to teachings, to some sense of comfort and hope that she gets from Scripture. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to connect our grief and our sorrow and our troubles to the truths and promises of Scripture because we know that Scripture is a firm foundation. We know that there is comfort and good consolation from Scripture. But what happens, I think, and what Martha is doing and what we sometimes can do is that we see these truths and we see these promises as a future hope. As one day God will do this. One day God will fulfill this. One day everybody will rise. And yes, for the most part that is true, but you have to understand that he's not just a God of the future or some ethereal hope or some future joy that the believers will experience. Our God is a God who is a present help in times of trouble. Our relationship with God is not just for salvation and and, and heaven and eternity tomorrow, but also this life, also our troubles today. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at in his reply. Martha is over there in the future, already thinking about the future. Yes, my brother will rise. But what Jesus and how Jesus replies is he's saying that, no, 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 hold on. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. There's two important realities that Jesus is addressing with this statement. One, firstly, the resurrection, again, the Jewish eschatology, that word comes to mind. When he says that Jesus is the resurrection, he's saying the thing that the Jews in the Old Testament was hoping for, was working towards, was looking towards, to the end time events, all, all, in how all the dead will rise, that final judgment, Jesus is saying that's only going to happen because of him. That only happens because of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. In Revelation chapter 20, we get a glimpse of this coming judgment, this day of judgment. In biblical terms, it's called the great white throne judgment. It says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the day of judgment that both the Jews and, of course, even New Testament writers were looking towards. The day after the millennial reign of Christ where all the dead will literally rise and be judged. And by who? At least from the flow of Revelation chapter 20, it's Christ himself who will be sitting on that throne judging the dead. What Jesus is saying to Martha when he says that he is the resurrection is that he is, in fact, the final judgment. He is the final judge. The last authority presiding over all the dead. He is the resurrection that the Jews, what the Bible point to at the, end of t- uh, at the end of days. Of course, Jesus also says that he is the life. He is the resurrection and the life. The second statement here, John has already discussed from the very beginning of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
From the beginning, John declares that Jesus, this is who he's referring to, the Word of God, is where all life began. He is the source of it all. All life. That is including temporal, our temporal life here in creation. That's eternal life. That's spiritual life. All life finds its source in Christ. Peter even calls Jesus the author of life in his great speech in Acts chapter 3. All life finds its source in the giver, in the author of life, in the one who has always been alive, always had life. <coughs> Excuse me. That's all life. That's including your life. Your life, too, originates from Christ. Understand that you're only alive today because Christ wills it. All life finds its source in the one who who is the, not just the author in, of life, but the one who does not diminish in life. In Hebrews chapter 7, it describes as the life that Christ has as an a, a, indestructible kind of life. This, of course, touches on, on, on some theological ideas on the self-sufficiency of God, where God does not require anything outside of himself to sustain himself, to maintain himself, to remain alive. Like, for example, how we require food, to be alive, to be awake this morning, God does not require that. This again talks about the eternality of God, God being eternal as we discussed last week. Time does not affect God. It does not deteriorate Him. It doesn't, it doesn't make Him grow old. It doesn't have wrinkles. It means that outside of what Jesus experienced on the cross, God could never experience death. And even in death, when Christ willingly gave his life over to death, we know that the Son of God could always take it back up. John chapter 10, verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, that I might take it up again. So Jesus affirms everything that Martha believes in the resurrection. He affirms this, future, this hope that Martha has, and that one day her brother would rise, but... Jesus gives it tangibility. Jesus says that the resurrection is not just some future event. Understand that it's in him. It's in Christ. He is the resurrection. The one who permits resurrection. Nor is, is, is life so fleeting in his presence. Nor is, is death so powerful in the presence of the author of life. Because he is the one who gives life. And of course, Jesus explains this tangibility to Martha. He says in the following verses, back to 25, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He, there's two statements that Jesus is making here. Jesus is not saying the same thing, but just switching words around. He's not being redundant in what he's trying to say to Martha, by the way. The first statement that he makes in verse 25, the end of verse 25, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Again, he's talking about the resurrection. Remember the hope that the Jews had from, from the book of Daniel, that those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who believe in Christ, what Jesus is saying is, those who believe in Christ and die, not only will rise, but they will rise to eternal life. This statement is for those who have already died. In this context, it would be Lazarus. <clears throat> the second statement that Jesus is saying in verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die to believe this. The, the focal point of this line is, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Those who believe in Christ and is still alive will not experience, not just not, 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 not talking about physical death, but that long death, that eternal death, that everlasting contempt that Daniel spoke of. But rather, they will experience everlasting life, never to die again. The second statement is for those who are alive. Again, Jesus is giving tangibility to Martha's faith in this context, that the resurrection is not just some future thorough hope, some truth, some promise that 
is far off in the distance. The reality is that Jesus in his statement is declaring that he is in fact the resurrection and the life today. And and this idea that Jesus is trying to communicate that he is that hope for us today is, is again, where it becomes practical for us in modern day. It has great implications for us who are in Christ. Not just, for some, not just for some future hope that we have in eternity, but it has great implications for us today as we live our faith, as we follow Christ in this life. Let me review some of those, those implications for us, those applications for us this morning. What does it mean for us that Jesus is a resurrection and the life? Well, first and foremost, we will forgo judgment. We will forgo judgment. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from Death to life. As mentioned, this idea of resurrection is this hope that the Jews were looking towards. And it, as we said in, their, in, in how the Bible explains it, it consists of judgment. The dead rising to be judged by God. It's the sifting of the dead for their allotted punishment for the life that they lived. But as Jesus proclaims, Those who believe in him bypass that judgment, bypass all of that. It's it's, it's like they go straight to the front of the line. Have you ever had like one of those express passes, right, to somewhere? And instead of having to wait along with everybody else, you have the express pass and just walk on by in front of all the old ladies waiting to see the doctor? It's sad, really. But that's what Jesus is saying here. Even the wording that Jesus Jesus has in John chapter 5, he says that the person who believes does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Past tense. It's it's, It's a present situation for those who believe in Christ. It's not a future hope. Now what this also means is that when believers die, we don't go to a place called Sheol. We don't go to a place, a holding place, a place of punishment, <coughs> waiting for the resurrection and for judgment. What this assures us, that what this assures us, unlike all the other world religions that lack certainty, that base the afterlife on your good deeds and your bad deeds, what this assures believers is that Eternity is not based on our righteousness, what we have done in this life, but what Christ accomplished, Christ's righteousness. This express path to eternal life, to heaven, is a result of what Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. That's our assurance, that when we die, that we are guaranteed a place in eternity. An eternal life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 to 10, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is where we get the saying that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment that you breathe your last, the very second that you fade from this world, understand that if you are a believer in Christ today, you will be home with the Lord. There's no such thing as purgatory or limbo. That's not in the Bible. You won't find those words in Scripture. You won't find those those concepts in the Bible. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if you are a believer in Christ today. Now with that said, though we bypass that that judgment for unbelievers, there is still 
a sort of judgment for believers. But not for punishment, but rather for rewards. In that same uh, passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul continues in verse 9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Those who believe in Christ will not experience judgment in the same sense as unbelievers do. Where unbelievers are judged to determine their degree of punishment for all of eternity. Believers are judged to determine their degree of reward for eternity. Paul says, or rather James says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. These crowns that these apostles are talking about are meant to invoke the imagery of a a laurel that ancient Greek athletes received upon accomplishing the race. And that's what believers receive upon our finishing the race. The crowns that are rewarded to believers that we receive are based on our faithfulness to Christ and the kingdom in this life. It's based on what we have done and accomplished for God in this life as believers, as followers of Him. It's also to show, by the way, that God is just. That God sees our sacrifices, our efforts for His kingdom, and Him being just will reward them in the life to come. Jesus being the resurrection and the life is assurance for us who believe that when we die, we will immediately be in the presence of our God and our Savior. And when time, and when that great time of judgment comes, we will not look to it in fear of punishment, but with joy, knowing that our faithfulness to the kingdom of God, our faithfulness to the Savior, will be rewarded. Jesus being the resurrection and the life means that we will forgo judgment. Secondly, it also means that we should not fear death. We should not fear death. In my, in my research for this morning's sermon, I looked up uh, what were the top five phobias and fears of mankind, humanity, looking to see where death sort of placed in that ranking. Here are the top five uh, phobias that people are afraid of. Maybe you're, what you're afraid of is on this list, right? Sinophobia, fear of dogs. Anyone afraid of dogs here? No one's afraid of Fido. Great, fantastic. Ophid, pardon me, ophidiophobia, fear of snakes. Anyone afraid of snakes here? This is number four in the world. Lots of people are afraid of the, of the devil. You shouldn't be. Fantastic. Number three, arachnophobia. Anyone afraid of spiders? My, my wife's hand should be up here. She's deathly afraid of spiders. If you hear her screaming in our house, it's because she saw a spider. How about this? Aerophobia. Fear of flying. Anyone afraid of flying? No one. Nice. And then last one, the, the one thing that everybody is, or the, the most, the thing that everyone is more, mostly afraid of, number one spot, acrophobia, fear of heights. Anyone afraid, afraid of heights here? As I was doing this research, I was surprised that death wasn't on this list. Like, why aren't people afraid of death? Like, what's, what's up with this? But I realized as I was looking at these, what these, these phobias, death underlines all these fears. If you're afraid of heights, you're afraid that you're going to fall and die. If you're afraid of spiders, you're afraid that a little bug's going to bite you and you're going to die. If you're afraid of flying, you're afraid that you're going to be in a plane and it's going to crash and you're going to die. If you're afraid of clowns, you're just afraid of demons and that's okay. 
Death is the epitome of all human fears. It underlines it all. It is at the center of it all. It's that one thing that every human must experience that is unavoidable. The one fate, the biggest problem, the greatest enemy of man that we all must face. Yet because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, believers should not fear death. Because Christ, as the word of God says, Christ strips death of all its power. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is often read as a proclamation of victory, and it is. But understand why. Paul is saying, the reason why we fear death in the first place, why death is so potent and so powerful in our minds, in, our, in, our, in, in the way that we live, is because of sin. Because somewhere in our subconscious mind, we understand that death is what we deserve because of our rebellious sin nature. For the wages of sin is death. Death being thanatos there. Not just physical death, but speaking of spiritual death. Death is duly deserved punishment for sin. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, death is experienced by all and to some degree feared by all. So the reason why believers can live in Christ and not fear death, why it is hope that Jesus is the resurrection and life is because it is a promise, an assurance that Christ has dealt with the very thing that empowers death, our sin. The very thing that, that says that we deserve death, that says that this is what we deserve and earned, our very sin, Christ has dealt with. Because Jesus died for those wages of sin, our sins. The promise is that we no longer need to die for our sin. Death is no longer a factor or a fear, nor should it ever govern our lives anymore. Christ stripped death of all its power, and we should no longer fear it. For, for believers, death should just simply be a minor inconvenience. Believers, if you dread Death today, if it looms over your life, do not fear. Death has already been conquered. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the master of death, the one who subdues it, the one who himself rose from the grave at his will, at his command. The one that assures us and promises us. We just sang it a few minutes ago. By his resurrection, he promises that we too will rise. By his resurrection, it promises us that death is not the end of our story, just as much as death was not the end for Lazarus' story. We will forgo judgment, meaning that we won't have to fear that end of day judgment to stand before God. We should not fear death. And lastly, what does it mean for us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? It means that we must not flee life. We must not flee life. Again, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Remember these two statements. One is addressing those who have already passed, those who have already died. And then the second is for those who are alive. The main component of the second statement is that those who live. If we live and believe. The exhortation there is not just for the life to come, the eternity to come, eternal life, but life in this life. Those who live and believe. 
Jesus being the resurrection and the life, the author of life, means that we should not squander this life. Not view this life as something to dread or simply throw away or simply flee from. Though this life is short, it still remains sacred because it is a life that Christ himself has shaped, has gifted us. And I bring this up because, listen, escapism is an epidemic in our world. Escapism trying to get away from reality and our troubles. One of the biggest trends right now in in technology is virtual reality. People living lives in some cyberspace. Have you seen those new ski goggles that Apple came out of, came out with, right? The Vision Pro or whatever it is. Really cool technology. I'm sure it can be used for a lot of good things, but... I think it it might fuel more escapism. People are unhappy with their life, so they resort to fantasies. They are unable to handle pressures, so they they, they revert to childlike mentalities. They, they, They turn to vices to medicate themselves, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex or anything of the sort just to escape their circumstance. Today, people, in order to avoid and to cope with reality, go as far as trying to change their entire identity, their physical appearance, their sexuality, their gender identity, rather than simply choose to live. And to the nth degree, some even take their lives. Escapism. Listen, for the believer, it should not be so. We should not flee this life. Because Christ is the resurrection and the life, it means that our life that we have, it gives us purpose. We have purpose in this life. We understand that life is not just some random act of evolution, or it's purposeless, or it's meaningless. The author of life wrote us into existence for his purposes. He gives us meaning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that for all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Life has meaning. Life has purpose. Life has value. Because it's Christ who gives us life. Your life has meaning and purpose and value. It's not something to flee from or escape. And and by the way, this is all coming from the apostles, Paul in particular, who famously said, to live is Christ and to die is is gain. Paul, by the way, he was not suicidal. He was quite the opposite. He was recognizing on one hand that if he died in prison, he was just going straight to paradise. But to live, to remain in this life, despite the hardship of prison, despite the hardship of persecution, For him, it was more opportunity to serve his Savior. And he counted it as joy. He was torn between two hopes, two joys. And really, that ought to be our mentality as well. Yes, eagerly await for our Lord's return or when he chooses to call us home, but also rejoice. Rejoice in this life. As believers, we have more reason to be joyful than any other people, groups of this world. We have more purpose and more reason to live than any other people, groups of this world. Because Christ's life gives us purpose. It's not something that we should escape or flee. So what does it mean for us that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? It means that we will forgo judgment. We will not experience judgment as unbelievers do, waiting for the the degree of our punishment, but rather 
the degree of our rewards in heaven, our enjoyment there. It also means that we should not fear death. Death has already been conquered. In Christ, death has lost its power. And finally, we must not flee life because Christ has given us purpose in this life. The author of life has given us purpose in this life. I love how our passage ends this morning. After Jesus has said these things, verse 20, just picking up from verse 25 again, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Jesus, again, just took what Martha believed in that, in that future place, the view, that future hope and those truths, and made it tangible in himself. Then he asked, do you believe this? Do you believe, more accurately, do you believe in me? Do you believe that I am the resurrection? Do you believe that I am the life? And Martha's response is really the only way that anyone should respond to the identity of Christ. The only way to make sense of it all that, that it should even impact us. Martha said to him, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is very much similar to Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16. The same confession that Jesus says his church will be built upon. A confession of faith in the author of life. Just as we close here, for those who are lost, who have yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ, if you fear death, if you lack hope in the life to come, listen, the only solution is Jesus Christ. The only solution to a life eternal, a life out of, outside of judgment and punishment, is Jesus Christ. He has made a way. God has made a way through the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we would have life. And as we mentioned, bypass that judgment. And that we would ultimately rise one day. So I invite you, just as Jesus says here, whoever believes in him, whoever believes, puts his trust in him. Not, not in your good works, not in your good deeds, not in your church attendance, not in not having your good intentions, but simply put your faith in Jesus. You will have life today. For the found, my brothers and sisters, the call for us this morning is to not fear death, to live for Christ, to have hope in him, to allow your, your life to have purpose and meaning now as a result of Christ's life, his death and resurrection. The call for us believers, brothers and sisters, is to rejoice, knowing that though this fleeting life may fade, Christ has secured for us eternity, a life that will never fade, a life that will never die, joy forevermore, a life that, that promises us that we will see each other again. That though any of us may fall asleep in this life, in Christ, our brothers and sisters will rise again and we will be together in all of eternity to come. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, O oh Lord, for the provision that you made in your Son so that though we sinners duly deserve death, you strip death of all of its power, of all its claim on us by dying on the cross for our sins. And to assure us, O oh God, that the payment was complete, that your death, your sacrifice was enough, you rose from the grave. 
He defeated death and the grave and sin. You give us hope. You give us reason, purpose for our life now. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died. And who now lives. Oh Lord, I pray, first and foremost, for those who fear death. God, that you remind them, O oh Lord, that you are the good shepherd that leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. But death in our midst as believers is not something to be feared. And something that, that assures us and promises that once we breathe our last, we'll be in your presence. We'll be home with you. I pray, oh God, even for even some who might be grieving now, who have lost their loved ones. I pray, oh God, that they would have and find hope in you. You, the author of life, promises that all who believe in you, promises that all who are found in you will rise again. And we will meet our loved ones, our brothers and sisters, the eternity to come, and enjoy life forevermore, where death will have no place, where grief and sorrow will be a but a past memory. Lord God, we look forward to that day for your return, for our Savior to come. But in the meantime, I pray, oh God, that you'd help us live. Live as you have called us. Live as you have given us purpose to for your kingdom. To run the race faithfully. To honor you with our lives. A life that is worthy of the gospel of God. We pray these things believing and knowing and trusting that you are our assurance to eternal life. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.